you turn then back with me to Daniel chapter 5, uh, at some levels, at least the title of it is well known to us, the writing on the wall, we would use that as a phrase uh, for imminent judgment of one kind or another, and uh, we may know the phrase, we might not know the chapter so well, but I would ask that you remember and uh, um, culturally adapt your thinking that this isn't a 21st century story, that it goes back into uh, uh, pre-Christ days and its uh, 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 ancient Near East account of culture and life, but it still deals with people and it still deals with God and at that level, uh, part of God's living word and uh, challenges, I hope, and helps us think a little bit more about life and about eternity even. It's a fantastic drama. It's an amazing story. I'm, I'm amazed they haven't made a film about it. It's just, maybe they have. I haven't seen it. But it's, uh, it's, a, real, uh, it's a real Belshazzar of a story. It's a real belter of a story. It's a tremendous, powerful, good story. Uh, frightening at some levels. Uh, strong uh, story. Um, and one that, uh, for a long time, you know, uh, uh, biblical or biblical critics denied uh, that it was a real story at all. Uh, for years, the, there was questions about whether the historicity of this uh, person, this king Belshazzar, didn't seem to be any evidence of him. Uh, but uh, that has changed completely, and there's now very strong archaeological evidence of this king uh, Belshazzar and his life and his the end of his kingdom, uh, exactly as it's been retold here. Um, and I said, well, really what I want to do today is just retell that story a little bit and then hopefully apply uh, one or two of uh, the principles behind the story uh, as it's part of God's story, God's redemptive story, as God points forward towards the coming of Jesus and uh, uh, all that that is involved in as God's people are involved in that. So uh, can I ask you to just stick with me here as we do a little bit of uh, putting it all into context and start with uh, Belshazzar himself, the king. Um, if, I'm sorry if you've been visiting with us. We're, uh, the ones who've been here over these uh, last number of weeks will know the story up till now. Um, but he's probably, Belshazzar, they reckon he's the grandson, although it calls Nebuchadnezzar's father, it could be his forefather or predecessor or ancestor. Um, but he's probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And in the time that Nebuchadnezzar had died uh, to the coming of Belshazzar onto the throne, there had been three or four different sons had all had very short, very brutal, uh, very mixed uh, um, reigns on uh, the throne of Babylon. And uh, if you remember the original uh, image of gold with Nebuchadnezzar and this great gold, uh, he was the original uh, ruler. Well, already things are beginning to unravel for this uh, amazing empire. And so uh, uh, Belshazzar, rather, is about the fourth king in maybe 12 or 15 years. So there's been a lot of uh, disquiet. There's been a lot of change. And things haven't been uh, what they were. And he's he's a co-regent. He's not the kind of real king. He's a co-regent probably with his either brother or father. They're not sure. Nabonidus is his name. Uh, and uh, Nabonidus was away uh, from Babylon at this time. So he left his son uh, or, or brother or son, um, Belshazzar, on the throne. And he seemed to have been uh, a bit young, a bit foolish, and just loving the power 
and loving the position that he had and loving the authority that he uh, was able to exert. And there's three things probably about uh, Belshazzar that come across. He's untouchable, he's unaccountable, and he's disinterested. So he's absolutely untouchable. He thinks he's untouchable. He reckons that, well, this is great. I'm on charge of this throne. Nobody's going to touch me. I'm the king of God. I'm Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He had a long life and great power. And uh, I'm untouchable. Now, even at this point, there was imminent danger from the next great world empire, the Medes and the Persians. They were on his doorstep. They were right there. The new kids in the block for world power domination were the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonian Empire was, was fading. And this next empire was right on their doorsteps. And it's as if he thinks, I, they're not going to touch me. If you've remembered, if you've seen the pictures of Babylon, the, the, the city itself, it was hugely impressive. It had massive, massive ramparts and defenses and nobody could get near it. And he was in the middle of this thinking he was completely impregnable, so much so that he ordered a great celebration, a great party with all the nobles, with all the rich men, almost just to, uh, as it were, stick his fingers up at the Medes and the Persians who were nearby and say, look, I'm untouchable. So he orders his feasts. But within that, he's also probably uh, giving the impression of being unaccountable. You know, he's, he's listened to all the hype about who he is and about his position, and he feels he's untouchable. And that comes across in a kind of spiritual way uh, because he, uh, he uses the, the, uh, the cups from the temple that had been ransacked when Jerusalem fell, the siege of Jerusalem, and the, the, the cups were taken from the temple of God, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar kept them. And so he takes them out of storage, and he dusts them down, and he says, yeah, this is what we'll do. This will be great. This will be enjoyable. Uh, I'll really show how unaccountable I am by simply uh, using the cups from uh, this miserable God who has been defeated, and I'll show how unaccountable to him I am. It's a drunken brawl uh, using the... The cups from the temple. It's a kind of sacrilegious act that he was engaged in. It was crude bravado on his part and uh, a blasphemous act that was absolutely weighed and it was done deliberately uh, to show how independent and unaccountable he was to anyone, uh, uh, most of all, the miserable God of the Jewish exiles. But at the same time, that was hugely disrespectful to his own family and to his own father, his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who had come to uh, put his faith and trust in this living God. Thinly veiled hatred towards uh, the Jews, I think, who were in his uh, country, uh, the believers uh, of the Old Testament, and to God himself. He, He knew all about it. It wasn't that he was ignorant. He did know about these things, but he sets himself against it, unaccountable. And probably in the same way then reveals himself to be disinterested. Disinterested in the past prophecies that we've looked at, that Daniel was involved in, speaking about the idol and the the kingdoms and the nations and the everlasting kingdom. Wasn't interested in what had gone on in the past, you know, uh, the history of his own people, of the Babylonians in his own time. All of that had gone. 
and he was disinterested in uh, what Daniel could have done, or Daniel's work, or Daniel's, the three other leaders of the time. Self-obsessed, full of his own importance, and full of his own significance, Belshazzar. That's just by way of kind of introduction to the story and to uh, the history of it. And then the second thing I want to say, and it's a very clumsily uh, headed uh, point, the incredible divinely orchestrated theater. Okay, sorry. I can't, couldn't think of anything a bit less bulky and, and wordy than that. But it kind of, this, there's, incre- there's an incredible God involvement in this story. And, and it's an incredible act of divine theater as uh, we come to this point in Belshazzar's life. Because in the midst of this great going party, in the midst of the revelry, almost in complete contrast and relief to what is going on, as a sinister and dramatic, scary hand that writes a message, engraves a message on the wall, a bit like the engraving uh, on a tomb uh, or on a, on a grave. And you, you can imagine the tension of the moment and even made more so by, you know, when there's a huge party and there's, there's singing and dancing and laughter and merriment and maybe kind of drunken brawling, and then there's a great change. And the music stops. And the king and everyone else looks to this. And there's probably one daft drunk guy in the corner still dancing. He hasn't noticed anything. But eventually when the music stops and even he looks around, and there's silence. And, you know, the bravado absolutely drains from Belshadar in, in an instant. That bravado drains from him along with the contents of his bladder and possibly his bowel. Because it says that his whole lower, that's the kind of intention of the, the Hebrew that's, that's written very kind of gently here. He's in a state of collapse. Everything has given, given in. And uh, he realizes something dreadful uh, is happening. So the glamour is gone. And so what does he do in this position? Well, he does what his forebearers have always done. They wheel in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the leaders and the people who are supposed to be able to interpret dreams. Again, there's kind of a, there's an undercurrent of humor in, in, in the way it's written. It says, oh, you, know, the, the, you know, and the king called for the enchanters, the astrologers and the diviners to be brought as were said previously, when Nebuchadnezzar brought them in again and again, and each time they didn't know what to say, each time they didn't have any answers, and it's the same again here. Even though they're given huge promises, promises them third place in the kingdom. See, that would suggest that he wasn't an outright ruler. He was second to Nabonidus. Uh, He was second to him, and so he could offer only third place uh, in the country. But nonetheless, it's a pretty good offer for these guys. So that's the situation. And at this point, Daniel comes into the story. Now, Daniel's nowhere to be seen, and it doesn't appear that he has any position of authority anymore, unlike he previously had. Remember, there's been these different kings that have come in, and he's probably been relegated uh, down and down the ranks to someone who wasn't considered uh, uh, an advisor anymore. But the queen remembers who he is. She was older, and she would have remembered some of Daniel's uh, previous 
uh, answers and help that he had given. It's quite interesting that Daniel just kind of appears in this story. So all these kings have come and gone, and kingdoms have begun. Kingdoms are very shortly to end, but Daniel's kind of a steady figure here. He appears again. He uh, is still around. Your powerful kings have come and gone, but Daniel's still here. And he also responds uh, to Belshazzar. But interestingly, if, again, if you've been with us, and you'll notice the tone of Daniel's response is very different to Belshazzar in the tone he gave to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. There was, some, there was clear relationship between Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and respect uh, that came through in a lot of the. But here, Daniel is much more curt, uh, much sterner in what he says. He doesn't want his money. He's not interested in his, the position the king's going to give, but nonetheless, he will answer it. There's, Daniel knows what's happening. He's, he knows that this is the end of this kingdom, and it's the end of Belshazzar's reign, and he's short with him. He's, Belshazzar had many opportunities to turn to the living God, but he's absolutely despised God and the mercy of God. And uh, he had the life of his grandfather, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, the people of God, he had the miracles, he had blessings, he had uh, prophecies, but he would not listen. He would not turn. And Daniel attributes that uh, to his pride. But you, O son, in verse 22, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, he knew all, but he was absolutely arrogant and proud before the living God. He thought his life was completely untouchable, that he was unaccountable to anyone, and so he was disinterested in all that spiritual mumbo-jumbo that was coming uh, from Daniel. So Daniel uh, does interpret the dream twice, or not the dream, rather, the, the writing on the wall, and twice it's re- repeated that his... Uh, days are numbered, and he's been found wanting uh, in the balance of God's judgment, and the kingdom is taken and delivered to the Medes and the Persians. Remember, that was the prophecy that Daniel had given in previous chapters to us. Belshazzar, I don't know what he's thinking, and we don't know what he's thinking, but he does give Daniel this third place. You know, he makes him, gives him all these new clothes and a gold chain and proclaimed him the third highest in the kingdom. It's like he just simply doesn't, doesn't deal with it. It's like he says, okay, that's, that's the interpretation of the dream. Daniel, you've got your reward. And he carries on almost maybe as a bribe. Maybe he thinks that, you know, in the past there was a time gap between God's prophecy and then between uh, the fulfillment. I don't know, but he just, he seems blinded to it all. Uh, but then we're told that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over. A different nation, a different people took over uh, that kingdom. And it's a very powerful and solemn and moving unfolding of history in this drama Now, in the cuneiform script cylinders that have been uncovered by archaeologists, you'll get the human side of that story. You'll get all the events. You'll get all of these things happening. But this is the story from God's angle, from God's point of view, from the biblical point of view, because God wants us to know about this story, and he wants us to hear what uh, 
is almost sometimes uh, underneath the surface of what's happening uh, in society. It's a clear and a powerful message about him and about history and about our lives. So just for the last few minutes, can I just apply that to our own lives for a moment? A story like this challenges us as the historicity of this story and the place of this story in God's Word in the Bible challenges us to sit up and recognize God in our lives. And the unchanging reality that the one thing that stops us from doing that is pride. That was what kept Belshazzar from doing that. He, had, he wasn't willing to humble himself before the living God. And that is the great barrier that keeps us from dealing with or considering or thinking about God, particularly uh, a sovereign God, but also a God who comes, as we'll see at the end, in the person of Jesus Christ. We wonder, you know, and we ask questions about God, and sometimes we can think we are untouchable. You know, life goes on as ever. Got up this morning. I'll get up tomorrow morning. I'll get up the next morning. Life goes on. All this stuff about God and judgment, nonsense. Life just goes on, and it will continue to go on. And the temptation beyond that is to go on and say, well, I'm unaccountable. And everyone will tell me today that I'm unaccountable. You can't possibly believe in a God, an independent, sovereign being to whom we're accountable. That is just scary stories. It's just about me and how I live and what I do. I'm not accountable to anyone or to anything in my life. And therefore, I'm disinterested in this message. I'm disinterested in the challenge of this message And I've got better and cheerier things to do than think about uh, a God to whom I have to recognize. But I think this story does, and and it fits in, of course, with the rest of the Bible, is that God uh, reveals himself as one who's sovereign over history. You know, even within this book, we begin to see in the passage of time that Daniel had prophesied the ending of this kingdom and and the dividing of the kingdom, or God through Daniel had prophesied that, and the dividing of the kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. And that, of course, even within the history of this book, that's exactly what happened. And that's what we know as we look back. We see that kingdoms and philosophies come and go. And we're living in the middle of a day-to-day in the 21st century Western civilization where we think that the whole world should be judged by our modern Western civilization standards. And everything else before that or everything else alongside that is worthless and meaningless. Every nation should be democratic. Every people should do exactly what we do in the West. Because in our arrogance, we think we're the center of the universe and that, that we will not come and go. But there's a great challenge and a great comfort to us if we simply look through history and look through uh, the Bible itself. And when we look through uh, the way that kingdoms and nations and leaders come and go, and interestingly, just through all Daniel's consistency, Daniel always remains part of that story here. But that sovereignty or history, of course, includes questions and uh, mystery and difficulty for us. But it is clearly, clearly portrayed in Scripture's 
the reality of the God that we have and the God that there is. But also, within the message that Daniel gives here to Belshazzar, we're reminded that God holds our time. God holds our times in his hand. So if that's a kind of, if the first thing is just this massive big picture of God who's sovereign over the universe, you think, well, that doesn't really affect me. But also the intimacy of God being sovereign over your life and over mine who holds our times in his hands. Every moment then is his gift. You know, the author of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. Your life is in his hands. Every moment is a gift from him from the end or the beginning to the end, the end to the beginning. Every breath you take, every breath I take, a gift from the living God. So as we get up in the morning, see, he's gifted me another day. I have one more day. I have one more day that he's given me in this life. I might have more, but we don't presume on that. And we remember and give thanks and humble ourselves under that knowledge that, you know, ultimately we're not the dictators of these things. We're not the ones that hold that. And the third thing within that recognition of God is that we are accountable to him. Made in his image for the creator God, we have to give account to him. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And that is the reality of our lives, that we all give account to the living God. Now, there's an interesting thing really in the Bible, which reminds us that uh, the verdict's already been given. (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The balances have already been struck. And in the balances of divine justice, we're found wanting. That's why we need uh, a savior. We've been found... And the Bible makes clear that already we've been found wanting and we need a demon. And sometimes we just really just hate that reality. And we hate the idea of being found wanting. It's a, we might not feel guilty. We might not feel that before God we are not innocent. But a very trivial example might be, you know, you thought you've driven really well somewhere. I think I've used driving illustrations before, which may say something about my level of guilt in these matters. But uh, I've driven somewhere before, and I've thought I've driven very well, maybe didn't realize that I'd gone through. I'm going to use an illustration of driving tonight as well. That's poor. Um, I've driven well, uh, but then uh, there's video evidence uh, to suggest otherwise that I didn't go through a red light. Definitely didn't go through a red light. But then there's video evidence to suggest, well, absolutely, you did go through a red light. The evidence is there. And I may not feel that I did anything wrong. I may feel that I did everything in the right way. I may completely declare my innocence, but the evidence is there that shows that I actually broke the law in doing that. It's purely fictional, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, But we can be like that with God that we can say well I don't feel guilty before him I feel that's an unfair judgment and yet the evidence by his, not by his standards of each other but before God he says look we have abandoned 
our love for you, for him, and our love for one another in a perfect way, and we have gone our own way, and we are found wanting spiritually before him. We are sinners in thought, word, and deed. We need to sit up and recognize the God of his word. But I don't want to finish there. What I want to finish is with this. When you come to terms and recognize this God, you also must come to terms with this God crucified. That's what we must come to terms with. That's where we mustn't finish. You mustn't walk out here and say, wow, that was a rubbish story about a vindictive and harsh and brutal God who's sovereign over everything and just gives us no hope. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of the truth. It's not the message that comes through Daniel, which points forward to an everlasting kingdom with a king of kings on that throne, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to come to terms with this God crucified on a cross, the king of kings who opens up the way into that relationship and into that forgiveness and that love with him through his own death on our behalf on the cross. I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at that this evening. We look at the person of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, fully man and fully God. This amazing grace where God sees our need, who recognizes we are weighed in the and found wanting in the balance of his divine justice, and that we can't deal with it ourselves, so he comes himself, the sovereign, glorious, infinite, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God comes, and he becomes flesh, and he humbles himself. Isn't that interesting? That Belshazzar wouldn't humble himself to bow before the Creator God. But the Creator God humbles Himself in order to be our Redeemer, to be one of us, in order to be our substitute, to die in our place, and to offer us hope and forgiveness and light. So our response should be one of humility and humbling ourselves by faith and trust in this amazing sovereign, living, love-giving, life-giving, rescue-offering God in Jesus Christ. And as believers, live in the light of these truths. Live in the light of the truths that we are accountable, that uh, we are people who are, are not untouchable and be interested and as tonight we'll see, the great law of God for us as believers is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. So let's live in the light of these truths uh, this morning uh, as we seek to live out our lives as Christians. And I would really challenge you, if you're not a Christian today, to think about the, the, the revelation of God as he gives it of himself here. I know it's absolutely countercultural. I know it goes against everything you will hear in the media and in the secular world in which we live. Uh, and yet, do your business today before the living word of the living God and your own heart and soul and your own needs. And make up your decision on this God who reveals himself as sovereign but also crucified on our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I encourage you to put your faith and trust in him as we have done. And it has transformed our lives. Let's bow our heads and uh, pray. 
Lord God, we ask and pray that you would uh, help us to see uh, that history and time and distance from these events doesn't make them any less relevant uh, and reminds us that uh, these events particularly are included in Scripture because they are part of this ongoing revelation uh, preparing uh, us for the coming of Jesus Christ in Scripture and also pointing forward to that day. And uh, the timing and the purposes and the plans and the revelation of yourself that is given in these uh, words. And we ask that by your Spirit you would challenge us, that you would uh, uh, speak to us face to face, as it were, eyeball to eyeball, through your word, that your conscience, your, our conscience uh, would be spoken to by you, that we would feel the power of the living God at work in our lives just because something may have been said that really makes us think, yeah, God absolutely knows my heart. God absolutely knows where I am. God absolutely knows sometimes my rebellion and my rejection and my doubt and my fear. And may it be that we find grace uh, and help and forgiveness and joy as we come to humble ourselves and turn away from our rebellious independence from you and begin to give thanks for the breath of this day, for our gifts, for our love, for the families that we're part of, for uh, the jobs we may have, the abilities and talents we've been given. May we begin to see them in the light of grace and in the light of uh, your person. And help us to deal with the anger and the frustrations and the doubts and the questions that we sometimes uh, allow uh, to distance ourselves from you. So help us, Lord, we pray, and enable us to live by faith as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.